Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. For 30 years, my first guest, Wolfgang Stela, has been exploring how new and often digital media, from portable televisions to early bulletin boards accessed via dial-up modems, remember them, to real-time installations of serial digital still photography, can contribute to art and the communities interested in it. In 1991, Stela founded The Thing, a BBS that quickly grew into an international community of artists and art professionals. By the mid-1990s, it became a series of websites, helped spawn the first net art, and had active sub-communities of users across the United States and Europe. The North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh is now exhibiting a mini-Stela show in its video gallery. The presentation consists of two works, East Point from 2004, a real-time projection of digital still photography of the Hudson River Valley, updated every 10 seconds, and The Road from 2011, a video animation Stela made in collaboration with Jan Gerber. It'll be on view through June 5th. On the second segment, writer Christine McKenna discusses the segregated Los Angeles art scene Noah Purifoy began to engage in the early 1950s. McKenna wrote an essay about Purifoy and his place in Los Angeles for Noah Purifoy Junk Data, the catalog that accompanies the exhibition of the same name. The show opened at LACMA last year and is currently at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. It'll be there through April 8th. But first, Wolfgang Stela, after the break. Marcel Brotaire's A Retrospective is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The highly influential artist's first major exhibition in New York reunites key works from all aspects of his career, from early objects made of mussels and eggshells to books of his poetry and his most ambitious project, a fictitious museum with himself cast as curator, administrator, press agent, and founder. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents... CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Wolfgang Stala, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. There are two pieces of yours on view now at the North Carolina Museum of Art, two of my very favorites um, among your pieces. One is East Point, a 2004 real-time transmission updated every 10 seconds um, of a particularly scenic and kind of topographically abrupt part of the Hudson River Valley. And so I, I thought that would be a good good one with which to start. Um, why is a digital updating of or a grand reference to Hudson River School painting of interest to you? Uh, well, when I started out with this kind of work, it started out very kind of innocently when um, we were playing around with cameras when I was working with a thing, you know, this uh, very the bullet board bulletin side board side and this very early social network of artists. Um, and the first work in this uh, in this body of work is uh, was the uh, Empire State Building, and 
And that was actually in, in 1996, 1997, we started playing around with this. And it was first shown in, in Germany in 1999. And uh, I mean, to come to the point, it's a long story to come to the point of this point, but um, we um, showed this in a, in a show at the ZKM in Karlsruhe, and um, it was live. It was a, basically a webcam. And uh, uh, the thing is, when I, when I got there, uh, something very strange happened. Uh, uh, I was just setting up the whole thing, and, and the first time they, they had all the browser icons and everything there still, because the, the technicians there already worked ahead of me. And I came there and said, no, this has to go. I just want the image. And they were like, why? I mean, then people wouldn't know it's, you know, it's a, a live update on a computer. I said, no, I don't, I don't care. It just has to be, you know, there's still a timestamp on there and it should be clear. So uh, we decided just, you know, get rid of all this stuff, icons and stuff, and uh, show the image. And the next day I walked in around noon. And uh, uh, as I walked through the entrance, I saw the image and it was totally shattered in a way, you know, it was like, it looked like, uh, like, like a lens had fractured or something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> and as I walked closer, I, I realized that, no, it's not, it's not um, a technical problem, it's, it's the sun is coming up right next to it. It was like seven o'clock in New York City in the morning, and uh, I just never saw the sun coming up in New York City because I was never in this, in our studio at seven in the morning to, <laughs> to see it. <laughs> Artist so, <laughs> so this was kind of a, a very uh, strong and strange experience for me because it kind of, you know, I experienced this kind of uh, a contraction of time and space very viscerally. Uh, and uh, so that's what got me really interested in pursuing this a little bit further. And, uh, and so <clears throat> what happened was uh, Thomas Barnovich from Postmasters Gallery also saw the show and he he approached me and asked me if I want to do a show with work in the Postmasters Gallery. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said, yeah, sure, we can do that. And, and so I worked for a while on, on three pieces, two were in, in Europe and one in New York. And the, the ones in Europe was um, an old monastery in southern Germany where I grew up. Called Comber, I think. Comber. And... Uh, <clears throat> The other one was the uh, you know communist era uh, uh, TV tower in, in Berlin, in central Berlin, and the third one was uh, the, this this huge panorama of um, Lower Manhattan, in, uh, taken you know from a viewpoint in Brooklyn, uh, using two cameras and, and stitching them together, and uh, that producing this, this this wide panorama of Lower Manhattan, and. <clears throat> And, you know, for me, the, the interesting part in, in this was to bring together all these images and, and have them displayed there simultaneously. Because to, to have these images from different continents and uh, see them at the same time was kind of fascinating for me from a certain study point of view. And, uh, well, we, we all know what happened. Uh, <laughs> uh, on, on September 11th, uh, the, the buildings collapsed after this, this attack. And so let me fill in. Let me fill in for just a moment. Your show at Postmasters that year opened on September sixth, exactly, um, two thousand one, and then of course nine eleven happened five days later. Yeah, yeah, and that actually uh, got me to turn towards landscape. I thought, you know, I mean, because I mean, here, here I was, you know, I, I wanted to show just the world as it is. I wanted to show 
everyday life, uh, what you know, basically what happens when nothing happens, without any kind of uh, intentionality involved, any purpose, uh, and uh, and then this this thing happened, you know, just uh, the, the opposite of what I intended to do. It became a big, uh, uh, a huge spectacle, this whole thing, and. Uh, uh, and it became an issue, of course, you know, for some people. Uh, <clears throat> I was the guy who uh, uh, became, actually some people said, you know, you just got lucky that this happened, now everybody's talking about it, which was exactly not what I wanted. <laughs> and and uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, I was going up there the same day to the gallery and to, to see what's going on and just to look at it. And uh, two friends of mine showed up as well, that same idea. And one was kind of a... Uh, a more art historian, art critic, and the other was more a, a technological kind of theory guy. And we were just sitting there and contemplating what this all means, looking at this smoldering, you know, the scene and the smoke. And, uh, and uh, the, the tech person said, you know, Wolfgang, uh, I think this is a really important piece now. And, uh, and then the other, the other guy said, no, no, on the contrary, its meaning has been taken away forever. You know? This, uh, this incident, and I was just like, you know, I mean, in a way you're both right, but I mean, for me it's still the same thing, you know, it's still, I set up the camera and uh, frame the image and whatever happens, happens, you know, for me it doesn't change anything. And, and so many accounts of that uh, show in the 10 years or 15 years since fail to mention that there were two other works on view at the, at same, the same time, time. and that was, was a really strange thing because nothing nothing changed there, you know. I mean, the sun was shining, and uh, uh, actually it was getting dark when, when we got there. And, uh, but the, the monastery was lit up at night, so it was kind of a little gloomy. <laughs> but uh, the TV tower also was lit up at night. Yeah, that was going on, and. Um, well, you know, one of the things about what you just said that interests me is so East Point dates to, to three years later, 2004, and, and another landscape piece, say, uh, for example, Umbria, um, dates to 2006. And in your telling, it sounds like your interest was more in turning away from the city to a less man-impacted landscape than it was about specifically engaging landscape painting. Uh, well... In a way, this this 2011, this 2001 thing um, made me think. Well, yeah, maybe I should go somewhere where nothing can happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was also logistically a, a challenge. I mean, it was much easier to set up a camera in an urban environment. You know, you have like you find a friend's place with a good view and um, a network <laughs> connection, and you ask him, "Can I leave my camera here for a couple of weeks?" And, so. <laughs> it's a little bit more difficult out in in, in a landscape. But uh, I, I made up my mind I want to do landscapes with this because uh, at the same time, you know, uh, by 2002, three people started setting up webcams and it became more common to see this kind of, you know, at least on, on the internet. But there were very few landscapes out there. So um, I asked around, you know, people who I knew had like places out in the country, you know, either in, in Long Island or, you know, up on the Hudson River. And I found a very nice collector who had a house there that uh, he was going to tear down anyway, and he just gave me the key to it <laughs> while he was in Europe. And uh, uh, so um, I had a motorcycle at the time, and I had a, f a 
friend who was technically very, very good. And so we just rode up there and, and played around. He let, he let the, the internet connection uh, switched on for us. And uh, so, yeah, and, and that was in 2004 when, when uh, Postmasters offered me another show. And I decided to uh, make this a landscape show. That's that's really interesting and kind of throws me off of what I had kind of expected a narrative around the work to be. So let me just really quickly go back to the first work you mentioned, Empire 24-7, which dates back, you know, it was first shown in 1999. Was that, and that's the one with the Empire State Building, were you intending to address Warhol, who, of course, whose 1964 film Empire is of the same building, or, or not? It's very hard to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, yeah. Uh, in a way, yes and no. I mean, in a way, um, you know, for Warhol, it, the Empire State Building was a star. You know, it was this kind of... At the same time, uh, yeah, I, it's one of my favorite works by him. So, in, in it, probably more... Uh, Subconsciously, I, 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 I reacted to that and thought maybe, um, maybe if, if he would be around today, he would do it this way too, you know. Mm. Um, so the address of art history was more at the beginning of the idea in 99 than it was in the middle of the idea in the mid-2000s? Two, uh, hard to say. I mean, uh, at the same time, you know, we, we were doing this stuff with, in our office. We set up a camera in our office so people could see who's, who's there. And, uh, it, and it was just a chance thing that, uh, out of, you know, we had this, this great view out of the window. So I just took a camera and put it out there and put it up on our website first, you know, until this thing happened in, uh, in 99. Which, uh, by the way, was not even, like, intended because the, the curator, the curator uh, Peter Weibel, in the beginning, asked me to uh, to do something with a thing to represent the thing at this show. It was called Net Conditions. Uh, it was all dealing with kind of new technologies and new media work. And um, I thought about it, but I, I could not do that because the thing was a collaborative um, project with many people involved in it, and um, I could not be the spokespeople, uh, the spokesperson for them. I mean, uh, they, they, I would have created a shitstorm <laughs> if I would have tried that. <laughs> uh, so I told, and also I didn't know how it can be uh, uh, presented in an exhibition because it was something, it was a project, it was um, something participatory. You know, you had to be doing it, you had to, to be part of it to really engage with it and, and to, to understand what it is. There was no way to just. Uh, show an aspect of it in some monitor or something. So, uh, but then I, I thought about this empire thing and, <laughs> and I, I, offered, I offered that as a, as a substitute if, uh, because that I could like underwrite it. I set up the camera myself, I did it, and it was a work of mine while the thing was not really a work of mine. So this is how the whole thing came about. I just kind of slipped into this kind of work. I'd like to switch to the road, which is uh, the 2011 piece on view in Raleigh. It's a piece that engages kind of questions of eternity in an American art historical context. It reminds me in a kind of um, humorous way of American panorama painting. Um, was there something about the idea of eternity 
that interested you when it came to this piece? Absolutely. I mean, this 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 um, thinking about time is like going through all my work somehow. And uh, I I found these little cards like more than thirty years ago in some thrift store in that uh, was in West Berlin. So, and I I kept them with me all these years and. Uh, and uh, one day I started playing around with them and thought maybe um, if I scan them in, my um, collaborator Jan Jan Gerber, who's writing most of my, uh, writing most of the software we're using, um, could uh, write some program that reshuffles them constantly, so possibly all combinations can be played through, and I just have this slow pattern of this this road uh, that that is ever changing and yeah it, i found it i found it interesting that you know it basically will never end <laughs> that uh, probably the whole solar system will will end for this this world performance <laughs> <laughs> So one of the really fun things about the road is that you have a time-based medium, video projection, kind of, you know, the whole broad thing, addressing eternity, something that goes on, you know, endlessly. Why was that juxtaposition or dichotomy interesting? Hmm, I never thought about that, to <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> um, the question was a time-based medium addressing eternity. Yeah, I mean, usually we think of time-based mediums uh, or media as as having a finite mm, beginning mm-hmm, and end, mm-hmm. and of having, and even if they don't, say in Warhol's Empire, you know, we all think of of a certain time length in relation to that piece. But the road, I mean, not to not to spout a '60s Bob Dylan or something cliche, but and but but your your work, the road, goes on forever. Not really. I mean. <laughs> It, it's a couple of quadrillion years, but it will end eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so you enjoy that idea enough just, to yeah. put it that way yeah. and have a laugh yeah. at it. <laughs> <Can I say? laughs> Let's back up to 1991. We've mentioned the thing a couple times, the online bulletin board service and community that, that you started. Um, I find that when talking about your work, that it can be helpful to remind people uh, who are familiar with technology of how kind of early in in the development of technologies your work has often been. So to put 1991 in some kind of perspective for people, that was seven years before you could Google something on the interwebs. It, It was four years before Yahoo's first web directory opened, and it was five years before, say, the New York Times was online. So I guess this is all a way of pointing out that when you started the thing, it was a very different digital world, one that was kind of enabled by dial-up modems of all things. You were not a a you know sixteen-year-old game-playing you know kid when you started the thing. You were you were forty-one. What what was your way into the idea and into the, your way into the project? Since I was working with video a lot in you know in the eighties, uh, mm-hmm. I was very early. On interested in computers um, and what they can do in terms of uh, video and photography. So I bought myself one of these very early Amiga computers and to, to play around with the that color wheels to could digitize things and then manipulate it with paint programs and they were way ahead of like Mac and, and PCs at the time actually. And um, uh, one day I just uh, was shopping around and I bought a modem. I didn't I didn't know why. And then uh, 
Um, I checked out some local uh, bulletin board systems here in the city. I mean, there were already, I heard already about the well, and there was something called Echo in the city. And <clears throat> basically, uh, by myself, learned all this stuff, and uh, contacted some of these system operators and asked them stupid questions. And uh, it was funny, I always got an, an answer back. You know, they were very uh, friendly and very cooperative in helping out. And I, I liked that because sometimes in the art world, it becomes very competitive and, you know. <laughs> and, and so I thought, this is, this is actually quite nice. And I had this idea, maybe I can start with my friends some kind of virtual salon, you know, where we can talk about art and exchange things and maybe do projects with this new medium and um, and so I just got myself a computer I got a basement my gallerist at the time at his basement and in Tribeca that he gave to me for next to nothing and uh, we set up we set up this little cyber cave it was very romantic in the beginning you know uh, very William Gibson like and uh, uh, yeah this, this is how this whole thing started out and then I had some friends in Europe and we built this whole network ourselves, which was kind of amazing because the, the, the infrastructure was part of the project. We were not sitting on, you know, on Facebook or on, on Twitter or else's name. It was ours. You know, we built the whole thing. You mentioned that the thing was in, in many cities um, and has been in many cities, among them Dusseldorf, Cologne, uh, Berlin, Hamburg, uh, Vienna, Basel, New York, uh, and I'm probably forgetting a couple. You have, in interviews over, over the many years, consistently said that you founded it and considered it an art project. Was there any particular lineage or context in which you considered it a specifically art project? Uh, I never explicitly said that, that. I think I left the question open because yeah, quite often it came up, you know, is this a collective uh, ready-made or, you know. Um, I... The way I came to it maybe was when I studied in New York at SVA. There was this class with Kossuth, Joseph Kossuth, which uh, I was in. And we did a lot of what you could call now early institutional critique. We were like analyzing our situation at SVA, School of Visual Arts, how we, how we get graded and, and uh, all these kind of things. And um, <clears throat> so it was... Um, then that we we actually try to reach out to other artist groups in different uh, educational settings uh, that I actually reached out to uh, the class of Josef Boys in Düsseldorf uh, to you know exchange uh, information and uh, and uh, establish contacts and uh, it never really happened at the time it was you know it was in the seventies you could you could only write letters so uh, and I actually wrote a letter and sent it by the mail and. Just never got an answer. So, so in 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 the in the nineties, I thought now now it's the time. Now we have the tools. Now we can do this. You know, we can have like at least once a night we can uh, uh, kind of archive all the discussions we had here in New York. You know, compress them, and then when the rates drop after midnight, because it was got no, that's right. Telephone <laughs> networks, you know, still. Uh, we sent this compressed data package over there to Dusseldorf and they distribute it among the other nodes and then they pick up what they have said. And, um, and that was the new thing. That was, uh, uh, for us, it was really exciting because it was a real, this, this rush of having this spear on the forefront of this kind of information revolution. It was very exciting. 
so the project remains a bulletin board for the first um, the four or so years. In 1995, it evolved into a website. Was that was that a fundamental change? Did that change content and engagement, or or not? So oh yes, much? yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, when I started it out, I didn't think it would last that long. I thought this is a project we do for a couple of months, you know, and then I move to other things. But it kind of, you know, I got absorbed in it somehow. <laughs> it took me over like a, I don't know. And uh, in in '95. Some people, like in, in, in Germany, like Jörg Sasse, the photographer who, who was running the note in Düsseldorf, had enough and said, no, I had enough of this jive. You know? <laughs> I'm going back to my photography, and I guess he was right, rightly so doing that. But um, uh, we already were so deep in it, you know, we started to think, um, maybe we can even make money with this. We offered email uh, accounts, and then later uh, were hosting other people's websites. So it turned a little bit into... Uh, because that was a problem in the beginning. It's a, it's a very expensive hobby to have. And some artists also said, well, what can I do with this? You know, I mean, I need, I need a gallery to sell my work and all that. And, and for me, it was still interesting because to do something outside of the, the, the usual traditional art system uh, and see if you can, you know, have this kind of autonomous uh, project going for a while. And in a way, I was also influenced by, by Hakim Bey's uh, uh, book about the temporary autonomous zone, you know, sometimes there's a, a window of opportunity and if you see it, get in there and exploit it and then get out again. I mean, my mistake probably was that I didn't get out early enough, so it turned into this big thing and by the late 90s, um, we were like three, four people, we had a big loft in Chelsea and, uh, you know, we set up like even our forums website in the beginning, hosting that. And then we had all these political activists like the Yes Men and the Electronic Disturbance Theater. And, and even like... The, like the, the very first Yes Men project was, was hosted on, on, on the thing. All of, I mean, most of them, yeah, till the end. I mean, till uh, 2004, till the, uh, when, we, when we took down uh, the service in New York. I mean, the, the toy war, all these things, uh, the e-toys, e-toy thing, which was really, mm-hmm. really interesting and really funny and uh, entertaining and, and uh, interesting in, in, in political terms. My guest is Wolfgang Stela. We'll be right back after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. A Baroque masterpiece has joined the Getty Collection. Orazio Gentileschi's Danai depicts the moment Zeus descends as a shower of gold to impregnate the cloistered princess, who then gave birth to Perseus. Painted around 1621, it was part of a commission of three paintings depicting different scenes of women experiencing divine encounters drawn from Hebrew, Christian, and Greek theologies. Danai can now be seen with another member of the triad, Lot and his daughters, only at the Getty. For more information, visit getty.edu.
And now back to my conversation with Wolfgang Stela. The thing is 25 years old this year in 2016. Um, that's kind of a traditional point at which sometimes people begin looking back at and, and figuring out the legacy of a thing. So at 25, what do you think the legacy of the thing is? Uh, what can I tell you? Uh, we, we, we have this technolo technological development now for better or worse. Um, I've, I've tried to get in there early to see what it is and just to uh, get a sense of it. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, I see the whole thing with trepidation, you know. I mean, if I, if I think about uh, artificial intelligence, about drones, about surveillance, about the NSA, about corporate data harvesting, um, uh, all these things, um, that's, a, you know, leaves me with a very dystopian, dystopian outlook. At the same time, it's just kind of still fascinating me, you know. It, 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 it inspires awe and, and fear in me, but it's also fascinating if he, you know, if humankind, if we can still kind of turn this thing around in, in a way that it's not like destroying us. So uh, I don't know whether it was just by intuition that I, uh, I, I tried my nose into this very early on, or I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it can also be hard to consider one's own projects because even though they might be 25 years old, one feels close to them still. Yeah, yeah, it's still kind of my my baby. Anyway, but I mean, at at this point, it, it I'm I'm not involved in it anymore. I mean, there's it's still a little business that you know, like two two technicians in Germany kind of take care of um, because we still have some legacy people on 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 the, on the network on the servers, and we don't want to just tell them go go somewhere else <laughs> but it's, it's not a viable business anymore and it's not a we're not really actively doing anything with it so it's in a way it's just a, it's dead it's a, I mean there, there's a lot of talk sometimes when I when I when I talk with them um, about what could be done but for the last two years it was just that it was just talk that people think you know maybe you should like offer more encrypted communications or uh, have more start to build a new internet with new peer-to-peer -peer services that uh, you know, circumvent all the commercial crap like Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah. Maybe it's, it's, not, my, it's not my calling anymore. Maybe it's the next generation that has to do that. One, one last question on the thing. I imagine that you still have archived um, the discussion threads and things like that. Have you thought about what to do with that big archive of, of data conversation so on and so forth. Uh, I've been in talks with a couple of institutions. I mean, the, the the Museum of Modern Art has a small archive sitting there, blocks of artifacts and stuff, and they were once interested in purchasing the, the first iteration of the red thing. Nothing came of it because of their lawyers and uh, copyright issues with artist works and stuff like that. Then, then uh, a foundation in Austria, the Ludwig Boltzmann Foundation, they published a book. Uh, was called Net Pioneers 2.0. Uh, they got a lot of stuff from me, uh, and that's sitting at the University of Graz in Austria right now, and doesn't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, they use they use it for some research for the book and that, but originally they planned a much larger uh, exploitation of all that, but then the, the funding was curtailed, and so it's just sitting there. I don't know. I mean, we. I was working with a curator um, at the New Museum two years ago. They had this show about um, New York in 1993, uh, uh, kind of a, a moments uh, what happened in 1993 um, in the art world. And 
And with him, I got, you know, we, we, we went through some of the old computers and we kind of recreated the login screen the way uh, the PBS looked like in 1993 um, from what we found. And he was also interested. He moved on to the Museum of Modern Art now and is uh, kind of a digital uh, conservator or something like that. He was also interested to uh, restore a larger part of it uh, from the bits and pieces that are still floating around and some backup disks and what. Uh, but it's getting more and more difficult. By each year that goes by, it becomes more obsolete. So I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, we have we, we saved a number of threads. We saved a number of the visual projects. So that's all there. But um, unfortunately, I never saved the original old like, computers or MN and just froze them in time. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, still, like, it's still open for, for scholars. Finally, we started by talking about the long-term video projections, and, and you mentioned how the 2001 piece was kind of a real pivot in how you approached them. Um, and, I have, uh, and, and we started talking about how, at that moment, you shifted from cities to landscapes outside of cities. Once you made that decision, you would, you would go on to make works that included everything from highways in the California desert to um, a golf course at Duke University. Once you made the decision to kind of begin to focus outside of cities, how did you decide what the landscapes or pieces of land you would show would be? Uh, in, in a way, it kind of followed me around <laughs> my travels. And I, wherever I was, I tried to take my equipment with me. And like, like last year, I was in Beijing for a show and uh, I had my stuff with me and I had a nice view out of the window of my hotel and I just set it up there. So when I was out in, in, in the desert, I was asking, I was visiting Andrea Zittel and, uh, at her house and asked her if I could set up my camera for a few days. And it's just a, also, it's almost like autobiographical. You know, I thought maybe one day I can look back and I can remember where I was when, in 2006 or 2007. Or uh, the other thing, for example, here in, in New York on Ludlow Street, I have now a record of my street for the last 11 years. I started first in 2005, and almost every year I set up my camera on my fire escape. And it's amazing uh, to see the change over the, the time in this way, you know, over the last 10 years as well. The 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 nine eleven part of the two thousand one piece, um, as far as I can tell, it's only been shown um, a couple of times. Um, it was showed in twenty eleven at um, the Goethe Institute in New York. Um, I think it was seen in Paris a year or two or three before that. No, it was in Paris. It was um, very soon after. I think two thousand two. Oh, it was two thousand two. It was a show by. Uh, that was put together by Paul Virilio, a French philosopher and urbanist architect. Um, and it was about, he came out with a new book about the accident. So the whole show was uh, about accidents. And an interesting thing happened there, um, because I did another piece for the Cartier Foundation a year later, which was in the Amazon forest, this uh, Yanomami village, dwelling in the Brazilian rainforest. What happened was uh, they were already planning that when the um, Virilio show was happening. And an anthropologist who uh, was working with this tribe of Yanomami Indians for like more than a decade, he was also uh, friendly with the director of the foundation. 
So they already hatched plans to do, send some artists there and do a show about uh, the rainforest and these, these Indians living there untouched by a civilization you know, and all that. So uh, uh, I set up the 9-11 piece and uh, this anthropologist, uh, first Albert, comes by and looks at it a long time, sits in front of it, and then comes to me and uh, uh, it's very amazing uh, for me. I said, you know, because we see this whole thing, it's all... Um, catastrophe, uh, the links collapse and all that. And he said, well, the, the sense of time I'm getting looking at this is almost similar to uh, what I have when I'm in the jungle in, with these Indians, you know, who live basically in the Stone Age. Uh, all this sense of timelessness it conveys. And uh, I found this very uh, uh, touching because it exactly is what, what, what I was going after. I was going after this... Uh, yeah, no, uh, in, in German we have this word Anschauung uh, for that, you know, that uh, when, when you, when you, the, the more, the longer you look at something, the more kind of it reveals itself. Uh, and uh, almost to a point where you lose, uh, forget about your subjectivity or your identity in a sense. Um, so, yeah, so that led to this um, invitation to go to the rainforest a year later, which was kind of a very, very, very strange uh, development. How do you decide when and where you are willing to show the piece from 2001? Uh, well, of course, I, I got a lot of requests, uh, uh, a lot of shows that dealt with war and the new situation, political situation, all that. And I didn't want, uh, I mean, this was always a, a, a close call, you know. I mean, sometimes the shows are not bad, but... I didn't want it to be instrumentalized as something, you know. I, I wanted it to remain or retain its original character, whatever. And uh, also, of course, the media, the media, hound, you know, they hounded me like everything from Al Jazeera to CNN. I uh, wanted to use it for whatever, their anniversary uh, uh, reportages. And, and I, never, I never really gave it up. And, uh, I mean, I, right now it's in... Right now it's in a show in Brussels. Um, it's just closed, but it will travel to Milano next month. Or actually this month in March it will open. The show is called 2050, A Brief History of the Future. And it's based on a book by a French um, philosopher by the name of Jacques Attali. Actually, he was also in the economics department of the French government, uh, I think, at Le Mitterrand or something. Uh, it's a book about... Uh, uh, projection into the future, what can happen until 2050, and uh, it's also kind of very dystopian, but also uh, leaves a little sliver of hope that mankind may come to its senses <laughs> when things are getting really bad. So I kind of read the book and finally decided, okay, I can do that. We talked earlier about how when you started exhibiting these pieces, you showed several of them together. Um, and how then a viewer sitting or standing in a gallery could see the day or the night at the same time in, in different parts of the world. And I've always really liked that idea. It seems, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems in recent years that as the work has gone out of um, artist-determined art galleries such as Postmasters, and into museums that they tend to be shown one at a time rather than in groupings. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 
sometimes the groupings really make sense. Like in 2009, for example, what I tried to do there was kind of <laughs> recreate uh, uh, Thomas Cole's cycle in the course of empire with, with my images. What happened was I, I went to the, the um, historical museum here in New York and uh, where it's exhibited on the west side and looked at it and uh, I just realized I, basically I have all these images, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun thing to realize. <laughs> yeah, I have like the, the, the Yanomami stuff, you know, the really early development. Then I have a nice Arcadian view of Umbria with a little, little chapel in the foreground and the olive, uh, olive trees and looking towards Siena and very nice and... And then I have the empire, the consumption, you know, I used the day before 9-11 for that. And for the destruction of the empire, I used, uh, I have I some pictures of the demolition of the palace of the Republic of the East German, you know, not the East German communist state, uh, the GDR. And then for the final, uh, I, I very literally traveled to Rome and uh, <laughs> took, yeah. took images of the Forum Romanum of the, you know, the ruins of ancient Rome. So in that in that case, of course, I would like to stay. They won't stay together. But uh, uh, otherwise, I mean, they they can stand for themselves. I mean, uh, it's not necessary to always have them in the same grouping. I mean, uh, for example, uh, the, the the National Memorial Museum is thinking about um, showing the whole work group uh, from 2001. So they they're really interested in keeping it together also. But the problem is, I I don't have all. The <laughs> there were so many technical problems during these times that. Uh, I miss. I think I missed the TV tower on exactly on 9/11. <laughs> it didn't come through. It didn't record. So that's a little bit. Uh, it's not always uh, possible anymore. Yeah. I. I. Someday when historians go back over your oeuvre, they will have to remind themselves that you were often at the beginning of technologies rather than in the middle of them, and the beginnings of technologies are less certain. <laughs> Wolfgang Stela, thanks so much for talking with me. Okay. Thank you, Tyler. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative, machine-inspired Art Deco style. Featuring 14 cars and three motorcycles, along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period, now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculptedinsteel for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Christine McKenna. She's written an essay about Purifoy and his place in the segregated Los Angeles art scene of the 1950s and 60s for Noah Purifoy Junk Data, the catalog that accompanies the exhibition of the same name. Among the Purifoy works and projects about which she writes is 66 Signs of Neon, Purifoy's total artwork made up of material that he collected in the wake of the Watts Rebellion. It traveled the country between 1966 and 72. Noah Purifoy Junk Data debuted at LACMA last year and is currently at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. It'll be there through April 10th. Previously, McKenna was the co-curator of Semina Culture, Wallace Berman and his circle at the Santa Monica Museum of Art, and the author of the book The Ferris Gallery, A Place to Begin. Christine McKenna, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. In 1951, Noah Purifoy enrolls in the Chouinard Art Institute. He's the first non-white or, well, the first black student to enroll what was the condition of interracial cultural exchange, if you will, in, in Los Angeles in 1951? 
basically, I would say there was absolutely none. In the in the essay that I wrote for the Noah Periphery Catalog, I started out writing about music and the interracial politics in, in music, American music in the first half of the 20th century, because there was nothing to write about in terms of black artists and white artists interacting. There was actually one other black student at Chouinard, probably in the late 50s, it was Ed Burrell, but Certainly Noah Purfoy was the only black student there in the early 50s when he enrolled. So how how does that cultural separation impact the Purifoy story and, and kind of the story of art in Los Angeles in the 50s and early 60s? I would say that basically the extreme racism of America and the art world, too, during the 50s, caused two separate histories to develop. There were two great shows on black art in Los Angeles that came out. The shows were, I think, three years ago. One was Now Dig This, and one was L.A. Object at the Hammer Museum. And um, I can't remember where the other one was. But basically, they chronicled these just completely separate histories that evolved during the same period. And there was no interaction at all. I've written a lot about the Ferris artists and the the main art scene in Los Angeles in the 60s, and they had no awareness of any of this. I, I imagine the black community might have been aware of some of what was going on on La Cienega and the avant-garde galleries in Los Angeles in the 60s, but certainly I know that the the white artists didn't know about the black artists. Los Angeles still has a not well-enough-known uh, monument to, to, to that era, the California African American Museum which has a a little known but deep collection of art from from early 20th century mostly Los Angeles. As you mentioned you started your essay by talking about Central Avenue. What what was going on along Central Avenue and why is it important to Purifoy's story and the story of kind of the beginning of the art he would make and and that would happen um in Watts. The the American black jazz music community of of the 20th century, it tended to move. I would say in the 20s, it it was in Chicago. In the 30s, it was in Harlem and Central Avenue very much. In the 40s, it went to New York, and that's when we got Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. And in the 50s, there was the West Coast Cool Jazz, which is white jazz sort of took over. But in in the 30s, when Central Avenue, it was 30s and 40s, Central Avenue was really starting to get up to steam. It was a really strong black community. They had their own hotels. They had their own economics down there, their own businesses. There were wealthy black communities around Central Avenue, but there were, there were interaction with the white community was almost zero. And certainly very few of the artists in Los Angeles, there were two that I know went down there, Robert Alexander and Wallace Berman. But other ones like Ken Price, who was a huge jazz fan, he certainly didn't go to Central Avenue. There was just, these were like separate worlds. They didn't know about each other. So what began to bring these separate cultural worlds together? I'd say they're still not that together. Probably white guilt and history began to be, art history began being more expansive and trying to include all these other dialogues and other histories, I'd say about 20 years ago, maybe on the heels of the feminist movement and uh, all the struggles that women went through to try to become, to assume their rightful place in the art world. 
I think attention to the black community kind of followed that. But I don't think that they've made that much headway, either of them. You note in your essay that Purifoy's art and, and activism, if that's the right word, isn't much included in most social histories of 60s Los Angeles and California, and that in the context of racial politics, and of course, especially Vietnam War-related politics and activism, that that's kind of nothing short of astonishing. <laughs> How should Purifoy be included? How should the story be modified to include what he was doing? There's this thing of politicizing his work too much. You don't want to just make it political work because it was artwork. It was fine artwork, which is kind of beyond politics, I think. But it was very political work at the same time. It is kind of shocking, the lack of awareness in Los Angeles of what was going on in the world and the L.A. art scene when it was getting up to steam during the 50s. It's, there's no involvement of the civil rights movement, which was absolutely at the peak of its powers in America during that period. There's no acknowledgement of any of that, maybe with the exception of Ed Keenholz. He did make work that acknowledged some of those things that were going on. But basically, the the work that was thriving, the California Light and Space Movement, the Finnish Fetish, all those movements that were thriving and developing during the 60s, they were very, they were formalist movements that were about the language of art. They really weren't about the politics of the country or much else other than they were very insular and about materials and not about social issues. So, Well, so, so is Purifoy the guy or a key guy who begins to, to bring some of the world in? Purifoy is definitely a key guy who's bringing some of that world in partly because he's one of the ones that we know about now. Who knows? There could be more. The two shows that I mentioned now, Dig This and L.A. Object, they found maybe five key artists, that key black artists that really should be more prominently known. But I'd say Purifoy is probably the most important, partly because, partly because the reason we know about him is Ed Ruscha took an interest in him. And Ed is a very very important figure in the art world in Los Angeles. Ed paid for the land that Noah Purifoy developed out in the desert. He sort of protected him and protected that work and helped start a foundation to preserve it. So I would say that that was Purifoy's first road into the mainstream art world. What was 66 Signs of Neon? What did it come out of and, and what makes it important? The Watts Riots. August 1965. Noah Purifoy was running a writers and arts workshop in Watts at the time. And he was there, you know, when the riots were happening, he was standing on a curb watching it. And when the riots were over, he and some friends harvested, I think it was maybe at least a ton of the debris from the riots and, and made artworks and created this traveling exhibition that that actually covered a lot of territory. It traveled around the country. A lot of people saw it. But as a former art history student, I certainly didn't read about it when I was in art school. I don't, it didn't become part of the, the literature of art history in the West Coast at that point. But it did travel. It got all the way to the Smithsonian. And it probably got more attention at the time because the Watts riots and there were riots in cities across the country. People 
white people are having to pay attention to this because this is coming into their communities in the form of riots. So, well, there, you know, one of the one of the reasons it didn't get much attention is because journalism at the time, especially in Los Angeles, was pretty white oriented. You have a note in your essay, or you include in your essay that the Los Angeles Times didn't so much as have a black reporter on staff in 1965. They they did not have a black reporter on the staff at the time. And I would say if you looked at the percentages now, the there wouldn't be that many black reporters still. I, I really don't think these two communities have become that integrated. If you look at something like a Whitney Biennial, how many black artists will there be in it? I can think of maybe three or four black artists that have really established careers that that are on par with someone like Jeff Koons or Damien Hirst. But I, in, in all the scholarship that went on about black art in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, the figures that emerged as really important were David Hammonds, of course. He was the most important. And no, then Noah Purifoy, there was Charles White, John Outerbridge, Betty Saar a little later. But there really weren't that many. I Melvin mean. Edwards. Yeah, yeah. But you can you can almost count them on two on two hands, which is a very small number. I mean, do you think that? What do you think about that? I think that Los Angeles institutions, especially, have been slow to catch up on the, on the era. You know, the, the the last big Melvin, you know, the the big Melvin Edwards retrospective that's I think on view now in Columbus, Ohio, at the Columbus Museum of Art was organized by the Nashville Sculpture Center in Dallas. Betty Saar has never received a big Los Angeles survey. Betty Saar's last New York solo show was in 1973, I think, at the Whitney Museum. You know, I, so I think that there is, yes, I, I couldn't agree more that there is a lot of catch-up work for collecting and exhibiting institutions to do, and, and that it's kind of mind-boggling how much there is left to do. And, and and LACMA's organization of the Purifoy Show, which of course is now at the Wexner, is is important, but should not be everything. I mean that you know, that doesn't mean it's done. So we were talking about Noah Purifoy and, and sixty six signs of neon, which is as as we were discussing this work that comes out of Watts. Why do you think it was important to Purifoy that Watts uh, and the rebellion be remembered and presented in the way he did? Well, the first thought I have in response to that is he was there on a curb watching it. Can you imagine the fury, just the ferocious rage that he witnessed? That seems like me, that seems to me that it would be pretty galvanizing in terms of being aware of the importance of what had happened and so I would say a lot of it was probably just in response to the event, but also it was very much part of what was going on in the country at that time. For Because of the, the work of CORE that started in the Congress for Racial Equality that started in the 50s, I'd say by the 60s, by the late 60s, the black population of America finally had the ear of the mainstream culture because they just insisted that they be heard. And so I'm sure... Perifoy probably saw that it was an opportune time to do something like that. And he also, um, obviously, from from the work he went on to make, he worked with what was on hand. And what was on hand was tons of debris. And he couldn't do that that project by himself. He had, he had a team of, I'd say, 
10 people who assisted with it. But I think he was very saddened by what he saw, and he wanted to try to build something out of it, something of some value. And so he created that show. It also occurs to me that to the extent that there was journalism and coverage, that it was all in black and white, whether it was television or whether it was newspaper photographs, it all would have been black and white. And so a a, a show such as 66 Signs of Neon would have been an opportunity to animate an event in living color. So uh, unfortunately, I didn't see the show and there aren't that many images of it. No, so, there aren't. Yeah, it's surprising how how undocumented that was, but that's kind of true of all of the the history of black art during that period. You know, I often think if we dig hard enough, is the work down there? Are we going to find all these black artists that were making amazing work? But then I think they didn't have access to the dialogue in terms of making work that you could plug into the art history we all know. And then they, so they kind of get pushed into the outsider art category at that point. They're down there, they're down there buried under underneath white art history, and there's this 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 line that divides them, a very delicate line that they can kind of come on the side of the art history we know, but because they were having such a different experience, it gets pushed into outsider art a little. Yeah, and Purifoy, despite having gone to an art school and, and, and such, is is part and parcel of that. Yeah. Christine McKenna, thanks so much for talking with me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.